0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And it's coming up to four o'clock and indeed it is Jane Bartlett with you for Tuesday home time until six o'clock this afternoon. Today... We'll be remembering Lynn Beaton, a monthly segment with Dr. Margaret Beavis from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, more details about the proposed cement plant in East Timor, an update on Syria and Iraq, and Brexit, why, and the ramifications. But first, Mr. Kevin Healy, and see what sort of a, a Brexit week he's had.
2: A week, Jan, listen, when after weeks, seemingly endless weeks, we're but days away from elect shit, and won't we be... Alex-shit, that didn't sound right. Oh, sorry, Alex-it. And won't the country breathe a sigh of relief? But on that exit bit, Big Supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull said Brexit meant true blue wazzies had no choice but to vote for the caring business class and the hayseed and sheep-shit parties. And Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo little Billy Shorten Ambition said Brexit meant true blue Aussies had no choice but to vote for the socialists. But given neither gave detail other than than adding stability to growth and jobs and innovation on the one hand and to save Medicare on the other, we can only hope they give us three votes on Saturday and we can vote for the lot of them to make a good thing of it. Which means we've already launched into our very special week that was election report aimed at helping us decide, listener. Now, Malcolm said he had a plan, and little Billy said he had a plan, which is good, because it beats them saying, vote for me, because I haven't got a clue, I haven't got a plan. Well, they don't need to spell out the clue bit, because many people think their plan proves they haven't got a clue, but we won't go there, because that's being cynical. Still in the pursuit of truth and objective journalism, and in our role of providing a guide to where to land the shaky pencil come Saturday, we put the obvious. Uh, Malcolm, what is your plan? My plan for the country is to remain Big Supremo. And little Billy, my plan for True Blue Aussies is to become Big Supremo. I sort of meant policies, a plan with policies, ideas. That is my policy, I told you. It's a great idea. I don't follow. I told you my plan and electing me is a better idea. Um, it's a tough choice between the political opposites, isn't it? Not sure that helped much, but we'll push on. Malcolm did say last night he is still the same person who got rolled as would-be Big Supremo in 09 or whenever, which, to put it as kindly as possible, is stating the obvious. Of course he's the same person. He's still Malcolm Tunner-Bull. The only minor change is in order to achieve my plan for the country, I've had to abandon a few principled positions I held, but that shows how flexible I am and how powerful that lot are in the caring business class party. It shows I respect democracy. After socialist petty wrong-the-workers mused a marriage equality same-sex marriage plebiscite would incite hatred and vitriol and bigotry, economic guru and former minister for concentration camps raise a wire and sink the boat, scuttle them more, last son, said he understood her concern because, "'I know it from personal experience having been exposed to that sort of hatred and bigotry for the views I've taken.'" Well, don't we feel for poor Scuttlebim? Don't our hearts bleed? Except, small difference, Scuttlebim, those who simply want the right to marry the person they love haven't deserved that sort of hatred and bigotry. Wonder if the victims, I'm sorry, the no proper papers, queue jumping illegal boat people he has locked up in the concentration camps behind the razor wire, have suffered anywhere near as much as poor Scuttlethem. Let's hope he doesn't resort to immersing himself in petrol and do something desperate. The True Blue Aussie Dear Baby Jesus lobby supported Scuttlethem and said any move not to hold a plebiscite would be a broken election promise. And while one lot cry out for marriage of poverty, the Christians are crying out for hatred and vitriol and bigotry to be legalized for the plebiscite. The community must respect our God-given right to explain bestiality and unnatural attacks on dear baby Jesus' marriage between a man and a woman. Perhaps they could recruit those great blokesy comedians, Eddie McGuire, Women Upset, and James Bray, Sure I'm Not Sexist, and Wayne Caress Breasts, and Danny Foley, to support their views on the role of women in the Dear Baby Jesus world, because somehow Cold as Ice comes to mind. If the plebiscite survives the hatred and vitriol and bigotry and succeeds, we can be sure those, the lot influencing the new Malcolm, who tell us a plebiscite represents real democracy, won't continue to demand a conscience vote, as they call it. Some may cruelly suggest an unconscious vote, won't continue to demand because we know they just love democracy while we anti-democrats adopt the anti-democratic position that those we elected should decide. Because they wouldn't want it both ways, which is probably an unfortunate phrase, given the subject. We wound up this segment last week about to put Malcolm's assertion that I haven't got a heart of stone to the test. A nurse, uh, chisel? No, um, nurse, mallet, mallet, well, mallet? No, 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 good. Nurse, okay, pneumatic drill? On surgery, what a beat-up, this scare campaign by the socialists that Malcolm wants to privatise Medicare, support private medicine, support private health insurance. (laughs) Oh no, of course, private health insurance is not privatisation, it's just, well, good business practice, sensible use of public health funds, and that's already happening, so... What's little Billy talking about? And maybe Malcolm knows he doesn't have to privatise what's been privatised. And okay, the original free health system Medibank brought in by the Whitlam government was privatised, but that was a different Malcolm. And obviously after Qantas and the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank and any other public service that turned over a neat little profit, the socialists have learned that privatisation may not be the best thing for those other than those who now capture the neat little profit. As a silly naive by the by, if the hypothecated levy to provide free health care is not enough, why not just increase the levy? Oh, silly me. Still, we have to concede privatised medicine is more efficient. The private sector decides unilaterally, despite what the contract says, that it will no longer fund this procedure and that procedure and all these other procedures, transferring the costs back to the public public sector or the person who took out insurance so she he wouldn't have to pay what she he now has to pay sort of quid pro quo you give us the money to be private and we'll handball back the costs win-win surgical removal of the public public's purse that was the week that was final special election report hope we've been able to help us make the big decision. Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country made the big decision, accepting, you'll cop millions of refugees if you don't vote for me, Nigel Farago of lies argument that impoverished desperates fleeing British, or, well, Coalition of the Killing, bombs and destruction and disruption, were the sole cause of poverty and unemployment in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, and the awful outcome is it may backfire. France, which has been hurting the desperates into the concentration camps, just like Troube de Wazzy, preventing them getting over or under the channel, now says there's no need to prevent them getting over or under the channel anymore. Poor Nigel may have to recruit the, her most gracious majesty's home country, poor and desperate, to protect the borders and fight off the hordes of poor and desperate, the other poor and desperate, who, are the, who the defender poor and desperate know are making them poor and desperate. Nothing whatever to do with the greatest little economic order of them all. And their socialist party says the shock result comes down fairly and squarely to socialist party supremo and would-be big supremo jeremy corbyn which makes it surprising they want to overthrow him given he has so much power and influence hope their real motive isn't that he isn't quite as convinced as they are that the greatest little economic order of them all is the greatest little economic order of them all might not quite be the result led to the resurrection of former week that was regular, former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Alexander, subsidising his not insignificant public purse pension with a high commissioner salary, who told us he had spoken to a cross-section of locals. Ambassadors, government members and the business community! Showing Alexander knows the greatest little economic order of them all is the greatest little, who in turn speak for the riffraff, saving Alexander from such pollution. Heaven forbid having to meet real people. The Minister for Coshing the Workers, Makadia Cosh the Workers, promises a tough public interest test to prevent evil unions amalgamating, backed up by the Troubluwazi Mines and Metals Profit Association, which stated the obvious. It's hard to believe an amalgamation of two self-declared militant unions could be in the public interest. It's most certainly not in our interest, which equates, of course, to the public interest. Thank you, Michaelia. A pleasure. Uh, Then again, Michaelia, this report shows 70% of brokers dealing in derivative trading are breaking the law. You'll address that, of course, Uh, a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga mission, perhaps. That illegality, if there is illegality, is clearly a result of evil, evil unions corrupting good people, those poor traders. Well, that's it. Finally, we've got four days to decide. I can't work it out. Malcolm, little Billy or none of the above. That's the bit I can't work out. How to get none of the above over the line. Good afternoon.
1: And thanks once again to Mr. Kevin Healy. 3CI broadcaster, trade unionist, author, working class academic, Lynn Beaton celebrated her 70th birthday on Saturday night with family and comrades. Sadly, Lynn passed away following the party and is being remembered for the many achievements of her life. In 2014, Lynn visited the Burrup Peninsula, a peninsula in the Pilbara region of Western Australia, near the town of Dampier, which has the largest and oldest collection of rock art in the world, possibly a million ancient Aboriginal engravings that maybe are ten thousands of years old. And they were threatened by the mining boom in Western Australia. This is an interview with Lynn on this program soon after her return to Melbourne. Lynn Beaton has recently returned from a month in the North West Pildra area of Western Australia. Lynn, you're going to talk about what the Europeans named Dampier Island, but which the Indigenous Australians called Burrup. Which is on the Dampier Archipelago. Can you describe where it is?
0: Well, I went to write a report of the Red Earth Arts Festival, which was the third of the festivals to take place. And it's based in Karatha, and Karatha's just about 10 15 minute drive from Dampier, which is in the centre of the Dampier Archipelago. While I was there, I came across all this remarkable rock art on a place which is called Murujigar, and better known to most people as the Burrick Peninsula. The art on the Burrup is a part of a much wider rock art precinct, and there are engravings, and there's heaps and heaps of them, and they date as far back as thirty thousand years. So a lot of them are pre ice age. So their importance, really, to humanity can't be understated. Describing. Sorry, can't be overstated.
1: What are they describing?
0: They describe all sorts of things. There are, Lots of them are sacred and tied up with sacred ritual. But lots of them simply show, you know, life as it was and animals and markers for things. I mean, I suppose... The most fascinating thing in a way, oh, I don't know, it's very hard to call it the most, but anyway, one of the very fascinating things is that the art that predates the Ice Age is in a very, very different style from the art that's after the Ice Age. It's important to bear in mind that this art is engravings. They're called petroglyphs they're engravings in rock. They've survived up to, as I said, 30,000 years. Nobody today quite knows how they were done. That in itself is, is a whole opening of knowledge, how on earth did these people 30,000 years ago with the tools that we assume they had at the time make these engravings. The other thing that is uh, surmised from the different styles that the pre-Ice Age art is, is sort of quite abstract and very, very intricate and so it consists of sort of swirls and quite a lot of things that look to me like dots, but I'm not sure if I'm making assumptions about that. But And they're these sort of magnificent designs that in many ways look very much like what we would imagine a sort of, you know, Fairly typical Aboriginal art painting these days, maybe. But they've obviously taken heaps and heaps of time to do. And so the assumptions made by archaeologists is that that life was easier on one level. There was more leisure time before the Ice Age, so food sources must have been, you know, more so on. But really, I suppose for me what's absolutely fascinating is that this art exists there and it's able to tell us so much.
1: And how has it survived?
0: It survived because the rocks are very, very strong. So for the same reason that nobody quite knows why it's done is because the rock is really, really, what you call really strong rock, dense, hard. And so it survives. You know, there's, there are engravings and, and you can walk on it. And, and when we went out with a guide one day and was very nervous about touching anything. And he just said, oh, don't worry about it. He said, the kangaroos hop across it every day and it's still here after years. So 30, it's all on the years. surface. It's not on cliffs and things no. like that. it's on cliffs. There's a very distinctive... I'm going to get a photo up and see if I can maybe show you, Jan. There's a very distinctive landscape in that area. The rocks are bright red. The best way that I can think to describe them, they form sort of little mountains and hills themselves, the rocks, and so it's a bit like rocks that you find on a beach. And so when you go to look at the rock up, what you do is you scramble over these rocks, and they're pretty much in place. The odd one is a little bit loose. You know, it's exactly like scrambling over rocks at the beach. Most of them are quite set in their place, but um, it's quite energetic. But the reward's absolutely phenomenal because you're scrambling over this landscape and suddenly you'll come across some amazing piece of art. So apart from the fact that a lot of the art itself dates back, I've got a picture here of one of the old pieces and you can see how intricate it is. And you can also see that it's very dark. Where the engraving's taken place is dark colour. If you go to something that's much more recent, you find that the, the engravings themselves look pale. So it's just a question of what's happened in the time. So this one that I'm holding up now is a much paler engraving and it's probably dates about 10,000 years. But maybe this particular one dates longer because the other exciting thing is the content of this art. This particular piece that I'm looking at now is a fat-tailed kangaroo. I've read contradictory reports, so I'm not 100% sure. Some people say that the fat-tailed kangaroos became extinct 5,000 years ago. Other people say they became extinct 45,000 years ago. In any case, they were a megafauna, so they were as big as dinosaurs. So what we're looking at is the, the preservation in art of something that's totally prehistoric.
1: And this is unique in Australia?
0: I can't answer that. I'm not enough of an expert on rock art. What I can say is unique about this area is it's the largest rock art precinct, not only in Australia but in the world, and it's the oldest rock art precinct in, in the world. And
1: over what area is it?
0: The Barrope Peninsula itself would probably be about, I don't know, I'm hopeless on areas and I haven't measured it all. You know, Kilometres? The Barak, yeah, I'm just trying to think. If you drive down the Barrope, it's maybe... 30, 40 kilometres long, I don't know, that might, uh, might be a great exaggeration. And it certainly wouldn't be more than two kilometres across. In fact, I suspect it wouldn't be even one kilometre across. It's quite a thin, long peninsula.
1: So there are thousands and thousands of engravings millions. and millions.
0: Yeah, On the archipelago itself.
1: And is it only on the archipelago or is it more, is it there are more of them on the, the mainland, so to speak?
0: Well, the, the peninsula, I suppose, you know, it's, it's sort of on the mainland, as that peninsulas is, are. Yeah. So, and there's a big concentration of them on the peninsula. To be honest, I'm not sure whether it seems that there's a big concentration on the peninsula just because it's accessible. Because the islands, of course, are less accessible. They just require boats and stuff. And a lot of the focus seems to be on the Borough Peninsula. And that's also partly because there's a lot of development on the Borough Peninsula.
1: that's the problem, isn't it? That's the problem.
0: So the other side of this, for me, the first side is that i found it and I continue to find it sort of horrific that Australians and Australia doesn't seem to know that this rock art exists. This phenomenal, unique feature which has global ramifications in terms of what it can tell us about you know our prehistory is a feature of australia and yet we don't re- we don't recognize it as such we don't pay homage to it we don't respect it we ignore it we pretend it doesn't exist and most of us don't actually know it doesn't exist so when i say pretend when you go to the northwest Pilbara most people do know that it exists but they pretend it doesn't exist so they don't talk about it they don't say oh have you seen the rock art have you seen our precious feature that we've got here that you could go no they don't say that when I got there and I went to cover an arts festival so art was the topic that we were all talking about I was directed to some wonderful community art which was in a salt pan on the Karratha Dampier Road the Karatha dampier Road is also the road from which the Burrup Peninsula exits. So just near the exit to the Burrup Peninsula, there was some pieces of tin put into a salt pan so that triangles of the tin were sticking up. And in the middle of that, there was a sort of a tin man made out of corrugated iron. And the effect was a man standing in the middle of a salt pan with sharks swimming around him. Well, you know, I'm sure that was somebody's community expression. And that was lovely. But has nothing like the significance of the art that's just a couple of hundred metres up the road, which wasn't mentioned.
1: When you're talking about community, there's a white community or a black community?
0: Well, there's both. I find it very difficult to say because I had a particular experience only over a month. My experience was very much within the white community. I found it very difficult to break out of that as much as I wanted to. So that's my experience. But I I wouldn't want to draw too much from that or make too many generalisations. There's clearly, obviously, great poverty, great disadvantage. The Aboriginal people have very, very difficult lives. The whole place is dominated, governed by the mining boom on every level, cultural, spiritual, obviously economical, and environmentally. It's impossible almost to take a photo of this magnificent, beautiful landscape without getting some sort of industrial Feature as well. You get a factory or towers or, you know. So, in every way, the mining boom dominates. And one of those ways is housing. It's impossible to get housing in this area. Apparently, one room in a shared house costs $450 a week. Aborigines have to meet those same house, you know, rising house costs, and they most often aren't getting the sort of money that the miners are getting to be able to afford that sort of rent. So it just makes everything about their lives much more difficult.
1: And I'd imagine it's the descendants of those earlier people aren't there anymore because everyone was shifted off their land and other people have been brought in. Is that the
0: case? I'm hesitant, knowledgeable about this because I'm really not, but it does seem from what I've read and from what I saw and from the people that I talked to that there is a lot of continuity there. There is a group of people, the Nagal and Gali, who are the sort of traditional custodians of rock art. On the Burrup Peninsula itself, there was a different group of people and they were massacred in 1868 in a really horrible, gruesome massacre where they were actually chased along the peninsula until they got to the end of it and at the end of it there were boats waiting and with guns. Um, and so it's, it's actually referred to, and if anyone wants to Google it and find out more information, it's referred to as the Flying Foam Massacre and that's because actually the massacre itself happened in the water. The situation there is such that there is a commemorative plaque to those people, which was put up by Aboriginal people, and there's also on the top of a hill near where the massacre took place a whole line of standing stones to commemorate the individuals. But I was really lucky to get to see it. It's really difficult to get to see it. People who know where it is are very, very quiet about where it is because they're afraid of vandalism.
1: Can you talk about the development that's going on in that area and the the dangers that that rock art is facing?
0: In that particular area, three things are going on. Gas plants are there to process the offshore gas that's coming in. I'll talk about them particularly in a minute. There's also all that whole Dampier archipelago is the port for exporting all of the iron ore that comes in from further inland, basically Mount Tom Price and other iron ore mines inland and they all come the whole time you're there there are trains massive the longest trains you've ever seen sort of caterpillaring across this amazing beautiful landscape filled with iron ore going off to the ports and or going back empty to pick up more iron ore those things happening so all of those things because this is an archipelago because the natural landscape doesn't suit a port you know ports need certain as we know, you know, they need certain geographical physical features for ships to be able to come in easily and go out easily. And of course easily is the is, is the prime word here because it's all about how can you do it so that you make the most profit, not how can you do it so that it's best for a whole consideration of features factors, just one factor. Of course what that means then is that the landscape is manipulated to make good ports. I watched and I couldn't only watch it for a short time because, to be honest, I just couldn't stand to watch it. It was a, a sort of um, a cliff, a, a hill, you know, a sort of... A, it's not a, It wasn't a sand hill, but it was beside the sea and it was a small hill about the size of a sand hill, but it was made of red earth. And I just watched um, it being destroyed because they were going to make a port in that particular place and they were going to make road access direct to the port and this hill was in its way, so it was just being... Of course that goes on all the time in when industrialisation so no is en- taking place, but actually to stand and watch it. Terrifying thing.
1: There's no environmental protection there whatsoever. Is that what you're saying? Which doesn't seem to be...
0: No, there is. There is. There is. Can I come to that in a sec? Because I'll talk about that in terms of talking about how, what sort of action can be taken about this situation. Because I want to talk about the gas plants, which are the most dangerous. But before I do, first of all, I might say that most of the photos that I took of the art uh, on the Barrett Peninsula and just across the road, literally across the road, like if we're standing here at 3CR and we look across the other side of Smith Street, that close, is an ammonia factory. And it's only been there for a few years. I'm not sure exactly how long, four or five years. I can't help kind of asking yourself, why do they have to build an ammonia factory right there? Is there no other site for an ammonia factory? And what sort of consideration was given to the impact on the landscape for building it there? The answer is very little. The bigger threat, though... Because as far as I know, their being there is a threat because it's likely that there was rock art in the way of building of it. But um, the bigger threat are the gas plants, which emit constantly. There are two on the Barrett Peninsula, there are two massive towers that you can see from all around the area. You can drive for 100 kilometres and you can still see these great big towers and great big flames of gas shooting out the top, and it's waste gas. And it creates a sort of mist... That mist is likened to acid rain. And there are scientists who've suggested that this rain will destroy the rock art because it will eventually destroy the rocks. It'll destroy the surface of the rocks, which is what's protected the art, the hardness of the surface. And again, these things need to be researched and investigated. We don't know enough about what's happening, really. There's not any impact studies, you know, that you would trust. Obviously, when development's taking place, there's usually a need... In the planning process for there to be an impact statement there are a number of impact statements and there are a number of impact statements which have referred to the art but they're all different and they've all anyway been sponsored by companies who want to develop in 1989 Woodside built the first gas processing plant and it's absolutely massive it's sort of towards the end of the Barrett Peninsula it's this enormous conglomerate of steel or aluminium pipes In its own funny way, it has its own very bizarre beauty because these pipes shine and glisten and and there's thousands of them all intertwined around each other. But what it's doing is processing the gas that comes in. And when they built that, it's estimated that they destroyed 10,000 pieces of art in order to build that plant. And there was a bit of an outcry about that. And that, to some extent, that was 1989, and that was the beginning of any recognition at all and any he's beginning to organise, at least in the white community. I'm not sure what was happening in the Aboriginal community up to that point. But in the white community, there started to be some outcry about this. And so then five years ago, Woodside opened its second gas plant called Pluto, which you've probably heard about because Pluto's caused quite a lot of controversy one way and another. So when they opened that, they were under pressure about the art. And so what they did is remove all the pieces of rock that had art on and uh, put them in a pile somewhere. Nobody quite knows where, but they have been preserved. We we're are assur- we're assured, and of course they've been taken out of Situ. And Situ is all important, you know. I saw art on great, big, enormous rocks had been positioned by people in order to make a hide. So you know, it's sort of like a, a man-made cave, if you like. And and there's art on the front of it. To sh- I presume to show this is you know. And actually, the art in that particular case were emu pause so you sort of think oh you know this is a little message you've come in here behind here and you might get dinner
1: and of course the damage that they must do to the rocks too to
0: remove them absolutely and it's sort of tragic it's physically tragic everywhere you look because you see all this magnificent bright red rock and then you can see where it's been removed and when where there's some sort of really Dull, horrible, grey, asphalty sort of rock. It was being bought in to create an artificial cliff to hold back nature, so the wharves can, you know, be free to manipulate themselves. So the dangers, the threats. What should I talk about? The threats are threefold. There has actually been a report that the Greens were successful in having a motion moved through Parliament a few years ago that. Uh, Report on the borough be done to look at whether or not it was deserved of World Heritage listing. And that report is now complete, and that report recommends that there should be World Heritage listing. So, uh, our task at the moment, in the short term at least, is to get that World Heritage listing. Because the report names three main dangers one is the industrialisation and the ongoing industrialisation, the second is tourism and vandalism, and the third is the sort of lack of management and the lack of consultation and proper development with the aboriginal people and harnessing their knowledge and allowing them to make decisions about how the area should be managed those were the three dangers that um that that the report found
1: how do you go about getting world heritage status
0: the government the federal government has so to apply for it. it's up to the federal it. government. It's up to the federal government. So the campaign at the moment is aimed at the federal government. It's felt that this is a very urgent campaign because it's felt that if Labor is not returned, and recent polls might suggest there's a hope anyway, but if they're not returned, then there's probably not a lot of chance that an Abbott government is going to take any notice of applying, given that the opposition to it will be mining companies. So there's, it's felt that there's an urgency to get World Heritage Listing get the Labour government to apply for it there is the report has happened now and it recommends it so the stand up for the Burrup campaign probably lots of people have seen photos of of groups groups of people holding placards that say in one way or another they might have t-shirts or they might have little signs but in one way or the other it all say stand up for the Burrup and these people are often in front of iconic buildings. Yeah, so the, so they're all around the world. So there are photos of groups of people outside, you know, beside the Eiffel Tower and beside Roman ruins in Rome. The plan is that any place or building that has world heritage, that photos are taken there. There's an unwritten, well, if this has world heritage, why has the Borough Peninsula not got it? Can't the Barrett Peninsula have it too? Isn't it as significant as, for example, the Eiffel Tower? Or, and in Melbourne, uh, the World Heritage-listed building is the Exhibition Building. So on the 2nd of December there will be a photo shoot at 2pm outside the exhibition building and everybody is welcome so I'd like to uh, ask as many people as are able to make some time on that Sunday because it would be fantastic if we had a really a photo of, of heaps and heaps of people. The photos go to UNESCO and they go to the, to the federal government as part of the campaign to have listing. It seems to me that it's incredibly important that we show the federal government as Australians, if you like, that we know about this rock art, we know about its dangers, and we object, you know, and we don't want to see this precious treasure decimated.
1: And time's running out.
0: Yes, and time's running out. If people want more information about the, the photo shoot, I can give you a phone number. It's a Geelong number. It's Davey Thomason. And it's 52979198. Uh, He's organising the photo shoot. But um, basically it doesn't require a lot of organising except if people can turn up and then we'll see how many people are there and we'll organise what sort of a photo we can get.
1: Surely archaeologists must be involved in this campaign as well worldwide. Do you know anything about that?
0: I know that there's a worldwide rock art committee and that they're involved and that, obviously, archaeologists and um, all sorts of people are involved with that. And that there's an Australian Rock Art Committee and they're involved as well, really, to how important this art is. And not just to, first of all, obviously, the Aboriginal people of whom it's part of their culture, but secondly, all white Australians who have this amazing treasure in our country. I'm constantly thinking, Jan, you know, how we're always being told what it is to be Australian. Oh, to be an Aussie is this, isn't it wonderful? And then I think to myself, and yet, you know, we have this amazing treasure just protecting that. Isn't that part of being an Aussie? So I would really like to make that part of being an Aussie, to respect, not just even to protect this particular one, but for us to see part of being an Aussie is actually to respect all that was here before Europeans invaded and respecting this rock art is part of that broader aim.
1: Remembering 3CR broadcaster Lynn Beaton.
2: Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways, but in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's OK, you are just being killed for trespassing.
0: Subscribe to 3CR bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch.
2: They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people.
0: Who does the killing?
2: The company has uh, specially arranged security forces.
0: Subscribe today. Call nine four one nine eight three double seven. 8377.
1: And it's time on Tuesday, Home Time, for our monthly segment with Dr Margie Beavis, who's the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Begin, Margie, with what I see as a most disturbing development regarding the World Flying Doctor Service. For the first time, the service will operate a for-profit service, providing training to hundreds of pilots in Australia Who fly Beechcraft King airplanes, the ones which deliver medical treatment in remote areas? That sounds okay, but 12 million of the 18 million in new funding comes from the Australian subsidiary of Israel's Elbert Systems, which was announced recently by the New South Wales Premier, where he inspected one of Elbert's simulators. You wrote a letter to the Royal Flying Doctor Service. What were your major concerns?
3: We have concerns with humanitarian organization like the Royal Flying Doctor Service partnering with any arms manufacturer. We have particular concerns about the Albert Citizens people because of their track record. They, in 2010, were found, were found to be shown to be having a subsidiary that produced white phosphorus, and uh, they provide armaments for the Israeli. Defense forces And the International Red Cross found in 2009 that in the Operation Cast Lead, white phosphorus bombs had been used in the attacks on Gaza. Now, white phosphorus causes really high temperature burns with particularly horrific and painful injuries or slow death, And the use on civilians is banned. Also, the same companies are very heavily involved in the separation wall between Gaza and Israel, which, again, was something that was declared illegal under international law by the International Court of Justice back in 2004. So this company, as I said, we would have concerns about any armament company, but this company is particularly problematic given what its history is. And to have some organisation, the World Flying Doctor Service, which has had a tremendous reputation of dedication and integrity in helping people in really difficult circumstances, for them to partner with a company whose main business is or, and who has been shown in the past to behave really badly. We're very concerned about that. I mean, just to give an example, in September 2009, the Norwegian government has a large pension, decided to divest their holding of over $5 million because they were concerned about the company. So for an Australian of highly ethical company or service to be partnering with this group is of
1: great concern. And there have been demonstrations here in Melbourne, at least, about Albert, too, at their place down in the south of Melbourne.
3: Yes, I believe so. I, I don't know a lot about those, I have to say, but I do know that there's certainly a source for concern.
1: Have you had a reply to your letter?
3: No, we've had no reply.
1: Are you expecting one?
3: It would be nice to get one, yes. Um, I, I wonder whether the Royal Flying Doctor Service were aware of Albert System's history before they entered into the contract.
1: Well, perhaps they should have found out. Yes, the wisdom of
3: hindsight, but yes, I, I think it's a, a really... Um, they've already signed a contract, so it's
1: very disappointing. And also the fact that the New South Wales Premier was there lining it all up.
3: Yes, yes. I think increasingly <laughs> governments are getting... Desperate to be shown to be creating jobs, and they seem to, when it comes to defence industries and armament industries, be prepared to turn a blind eye to what the meaning of what they're spending may be down the track.
1: Talk about the latest quarterly essay. The title is Firing Line, and it's an Australian Path to War by James Brown. Can you first introduce him?
3: James Brown is a soldier who's served a number of times in the middle east he's currently or he until recently was working with the Lowy institute he um, has written a couple of sort of well he's written a lot but a book that you're maybe familiar with the long shadow of anzac which outlined how the sort of mythology that's increasingly building around the anzac legend is in fact very detrimental to Australia's soldiers. In fact, he, in that book, he went on to talk about how, well, two major impacts. One was that sometimes soldiers felt that they couldn't live up to the Anzac myth, and this contributed to their feeling of failure or their feeling of despondency that this mythology about how soldiers behave not possible to achieve. But secondly, it is interesting that Australia last year, in the sort of enormous hoopla around the centenary of Anzac. Spent more than Britain, Germany, Canada combined. Spent over $300 million with an enormous uh, number of events. And and this money really would have been better spent, quite a bit of it, if it had, in fact, gone to veterans' health, where there's there's Australian veterans and soldiers who are not getting proper care and, and to be spending such vast sums commemorating something that's possibly mythological in terms of the ANZAC myth and then ignoring the needs of your own troops now when they've come back and are suffering because of their efforts on behalf of the country seems really fundamentally wrong. Anyway, James Brown has taken up an issue which MAPW has been working on for some time, which is we need to look at how Australia goes to war. Recently, Tony Abbott almost committed 3,000 troops, Australian troops to the Ukraine. Fortunately, he was talked out of it. But Australian law is such that going to war is, is pick. If he'd pushed it, to st- Tony Abbott had have sent 3,000 troops into the Ukraine, which effectively Australia would have been taking on Russia, and where that lies national interest is beyond me. So basically, he's now arguing that we should be more to review the battles that we're involved in so that we can actually take lessons from them, and this seems to us eminently sensible we would take it one step further and say we also not only need to review what happens during the wars, but we also need to very closely review why and how we go to war. Using the Iraq War as an example, it has gone on to destabilise the region, and at the time, many there was over 100,000 people protesting in Melbourne to say, don't go into Iraq. So the reasons used to go into Iraq were later proven to be wrong and quite spurious, and yet there's been no actual inquiry In Australia, into that, the Chilcot inquiry in England is going to come out shortly, and it will be very interesting to see what findings they have. Because I think, even in advance of going to war into Iraq, it was a bad idea. And now I'm looking, with the wisdom of hindsight, at the terrible destabilisation that war has caused and the rise of ISIS. You have to reflect, we must reflect on why we went to war and we also need to make sure that in Australia the Prime Minister can't make that decision that needs to be a decision by both Houses of Parliament. James Brown is also calling for, I've forgotten the exact term he uses, but the equivalent of a Parliamentary Budget Office, a Parliamentary Defence Office, if you like, which actually gives good factual strategic information that decisions can be based on... And information instead of heavily influenced by political variables of the day. So we're very strong on war powers reform, and James Brown has certainly raised that as an issue in his quarterly essay.
1: Do you touch on the fact that we're now spending more and more on war?
3: Oh, the recent budget is so disheartening. The defence budget, whereas everything else is getting cut, defence is booming. have sort of been decoupled from the of cuts of everywhere else. I mean, we've cut our foreign aid budget very shamefully. We're now at 0.22% of gross national income when countries, equivalent countries like Britain who also came back um, legislated to keep their foreign aid at 0.7%. So more than times what we have and they've legislated because they felt that the cuts shouldn't be made at the expense of the poorest people in the world. Here in Australia, we have made the cuts at the expense of... The people in the world, yet Defence is getting more and more funding. It's it's currently looking like it's budgeted to go to 2% of gross domestic product by 2020. So um, at the moment we're spending, these numbers are meaningless, but 42 in 2020 and 59 by 2025. And this is very disturbing because if you spend a great deal of money on war, it does actually increase the likelihood of going to war. And also reducing efforts in foreign diplomacy; those are both things that work to reduce conflict. If you can keep a, a region stable and functioning, it's much more likely to, much less likely to disintegrate. And similarly, if our defence, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade has got no specific focus capacity for conflict resolution measures like mediation, and its budget is a tiny fraction of the. Uh, defence expenditure. Norway has got a a, a dedicated mediation unit and Australia could do wonderful things in our region if we could establish ourselves as an honest broker with a mediation unit but there's no hint of that happening at all we're just focusing on submarines and planes and all manner of warships and frigates we're missing the prevention side of it and it's very cost effective to prevent conflict um, and we could be doing so much better.
1: How does he tackle our close connections with the U.S. military and U.S. war games?
3: With the U.S. alliance, Australia is very tightly linked in terms of our equipment. I mean, we're choosing to get the Joint Strike Fighter jets so that we are able to work with the U.S. military. And the Joint Strike Fighter jets, in their own right, are a very doubtful piece of equipment in that they've had multiple failures. Canada has cancelled their order for the joint strike fighter jets because they are so unsatisfactory, and yet Australia has outsourced quality control for the joint strike fighter jets to America, and America has outsourced its quality control for the joint strike fighter jets to the manufacturer. So, this is really concerning in that we may not only spend billions on these pieces, but I think it's about eighteen billion a piece, I'm not sure, but the cost is huge and. The quality control is poor. So we're very tightly aligned with America's foreign policy. And whilst I don't think James Brown is calling for a change to the alliance, I think our ability to review what's happening in previous wars is, is very heavily impacted by that.
1: You recently had an article printed in the Sydney Morning Herald entitled Preparing for War is Not a Suitable Economic Boost, Not a Job Creation... What were your arguments?
3: In the context of an election, particularly in the context of South Australia, where jobs are very much topical and a source of concern for everyone, the choice of the submarines as being built there and a job creation scheme is worth looking at because there's analysis that's been done in America looking at spending and how many jobs are created with particular amounts of money spending. And for instance, there's a guy from Washington University who said that a million spent in the military creates eight jobs, a million spent in education creates six jobs, and the same in in health force jobs, so almost double in, in sort of um, health and education. And yet if these defense approaches are being rooted as ways of boosting jobs, it's a poor use of funds, and it's also dangerous in that there's links between escalating military budgets and devastation overseas. I mean, there's a famous bloke from Sir Edward Grey, who was the British Foreign Secretary in 1914, who at the end of World War One said, to quote him, that the moral is obvious, that great armaments inevitably lead to war. And I think that for Australia to put its faith in a huge defence budget in terms of preventing war is, is a mistake. It's also a mistake in terms of job creation as well. So I'm sort of the, the, the focus is misplaced, I think.
1: You've also liked to talk about the ALP on disarmament.
3: Yes, it's really encouraging. ALP at its last convention, when it was in policy, said it would support a nuclear weapons and treaty. And this is something that, in previous programs, as you would know, we're very excited about it because in Geneva there are processes underway that look like. This may well be coming into be. At the end of the year, there'll be a United Nations resolution on this, and then next year, these weapons may yet be legislated to be illegal. So what's exciting is that um, the ALP, as part of its policy platform, has put forward that it will support a nuclear weapons ban, and this is a big change because in the past, both ALP and the Liberals have worked actively to undermine nuclear weapons ban. I mean, they, they both talk the talk of nuclear disarmament, but actually walking the walk of working towards a ban has been really a place where Australia has behaved very badly, that the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade have acted on behalf of the weasel states. I'll explain that <laughs> the weasels are, are the non-nuclear countries, but they're allies of the bigger nuclear armed states and act. Australia has been largely acting as a proxy for the United States to undermine the discussions so far towards nuclear weapons ban. So it's very exciting that the Labor party and the Greens, of course, also support a nuclear ban.
1: I think that gives the weasels a bad name.
3: Yes, I think, I think the weasels are, are just that and I think they need to recognise it. They're on the wrong side of history that these weapons are sort of the ultimate weapons of mass destruction and definitely targeted against civilians and unless we can make them illegal it's a two-step process actually i should explain that they, first you have the ban which makes them illegal and then you have the nuts and bolts of working out how to reduce stockpiles and how to enforce that and by reducing there's now 16,000 or so nuclear weapons in the world and by reducing these stockpiles you can go an enormous way to reducing the likelihood of the use of nuclear weapons. So we're at a very exciting stage with that ban, and it's also exciting to see that not only the Greens, but also the Labor Party are prepared to support that ban.
1: And where does India fit into all of this?
3: Fortunately, over the weekend, China has blocked India joining the Nuclear Suppliers Group. Now, India was wanting to get free access to uranium, and this is a great concern because India back in 74, developed nuclear weapons using uranium they'd promised to use just for nuclear power. And by detonating that weapon back in 1974, they sparked off a arms ra- an arms race with Pakistan. So now both Pakistan and India have just under 100 nuclear weapons each. And for India to apply to become a member of the nuclear suppliers group would have been very would have sort of been the final endorsement of India's nuclear weapons program and given it was developed deceitful and that they are now saying that they use uranium for power generation beggars belief because there have been uranium, uh, Indian nuclear experts who have come out saying that for each amount of uranium that they import this frees up the limited supplies of Indian... Domestic uranium to use for weapons. So, by Australia, and Australia is signed agreements to supply uranium to India. Now, again, that's a very shameful thing because we are supporting weapons proliferation in the subcontinent. And um, is
1: that actually happening? Is the uranium going to? I think India? it's
3: not started yet. I think I haven't followed as closely as I could, but I think there's still some regulatory hurdles. But I think that the government, despite reservations, West by the Joint Committee on Treaties I think the government is going ahead with those exports
1: Margie, can you just explain what the Nuclear Suppliers Group is?
3: Um, it's a 48 nation group that both wins and uses uranium and set up back in the 70s to try and regulate uranium because they recognised that uranium could be used to make weapons. in fact I think it was set up in response to the Indian weapons tests and so it was supposed to regulate the sale of uranium and by doing so regulate the spread of nuclear technology and the spread of nuclear weapons, because of course nuclear power and nuclear weapons tend to go hand in hand. The group functioned pretty effectively till, about, I think, eight years ago when George Bush, I think it was, no, George Bush, one of the American presidents opened it up much more widely and that took a lot of the teeth out, so it then became less powerful body in terms of regulating the sale of uranium and so it's lost a lot it's by about eight years ago it stopped being nearly as effective and was undermining the non-proliferation treaty but the admission of india now would really be for the final straw it would make it a completely nominal body but with very limited teeth in terms of limiting the spread of nuclear weapons
1: finally the election is going to be next weekend and Sadly, refugees aren't very prominent in this election campaign with the major parties. No.
3: No, it's very disheartening to see that we're spending a billion dollars a year to imprison people who've done nothing wrong and we're imprisoning them indefinitely and it's basically a recipe for mental illness and really immeasurable cruelty. And I think all Australians should be very ashamed of that and... The policies of both the Labor Party and Liberal Party are very closely aligned, and there are other and other proposals where offshore processing, where actually the United Nations processing in a third country with increased human cakes has a, has the potential to mean that we don't need these appalling detention centres. I think it's. Um, a national disgrace still exist, and even more disgraceful that neither party can have the humanity to stop them.
1: Okay, perhaps I should ask you Margaret, maybe I should have done this at the beginning just to give listeners a a bit more of an idea of of what Mapboy does. Okay, UAPW
3: works um, with education and research and advocacy to try and reduce conflict we recognize that wars do happen but we also recognize that wars often happen unnecessarily and that the impacts on civilians and societies are enormous and if you can reduce warfare through diplomatic use or foreign aid or advocacy that this save an enormous amount of human and death not to mention environmental damage so we're really looking to try and advocate the part of peace and also to place it in the conversation, not a political issue but as a health issue because it clearly is, given all the death and disability and distress that it causes.
1: And if people want more information, they can go to your webpage.
3: Yes, although it is a fairly antique webpage. We're just about to, to refresh it. So go to our webpage and bear with us, please. But yes, www.mapw.org.au. Thanks, Margie. Okay, thank you, Jan.
1: And that's Dr. Margie Beavis, who's the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And you are listening to 3CR, where the time is 4.54. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855 and what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap so well done you're listening to tuesday home time on melbourne community radio station 3cr i'm jan bartlett and i'm speaking with environmental activist lee tan the second issue we talked about a couple of weeks ago was proposed
4: Mm -hmm. cement project in
1: east timor how has that developed
4: Earlier this year, the company was doing some community consultation, putting their terms of references available online for a bit of a public scrutiny. But we haven't seen the reports. We haven't seen any of the impact assessments. Recently, in May 19, some kind of an agreement's been signed by the government. And that's kind of quite worrying because... If the government's signing agreement that is binding, you know, what if the impact assessment came out negative? Then there's very little ground for objection without having to pay hefty fines or so, and so on. So.
1: Who's doing the assessment?
4: Well, a whole lot of people. I mean, some are independent. I know some of the um, environmental impact assessments are done by people who had done a fair bit of research in Timor. But if the assessment's not made known, it's kind of quite useless. It's not worth the paper they're written on. So why wouldn't it be made public? We're not sure, actually. So you think it's been done? Well, it would have been done because the terms of reference was issued earlier this year. And according to the the company's own timeline, it should have been done and that public consultation should have taken place post-assessment. But that hasn't happened. Even one of the advisors for the government, environmental advisor, he had not seen any of the reports. And yet this uh, agreement's been signed, so it's kind of very worrying.
1: Are there people in Timor who are following this and are very upset about what's happening?
4: I haven't heard much from them, actually, which is quite worrying. I I, I suspect they have not really understand the implication of the signing. A signing paper in, in Timor has very little meaning. Uh, they do what they want anyway. But in this case, it's a different matter. We're dealing with a company who is not afraid to sue. And in Western Australia, they have sue worker who's posed comments about a company, and they have sued even the Western Australian state government for delaying their projects. Who is the company? TL Cement, but in Australia, it belongs to the Buckridge Group of Company. They're a major developer based in Perth. What do you see as the foreseeable problems with the project? The size of it. It's a huge cement plant that will produce 1.65 million tonnes of cement a year. And every day, they're going to mine 7,000 tonnes of limestone. That's huge amount. They're going to leave a huge hole. And whereabouts? In Balkal, which is the second largest urban centre in Timor. It's quite a pretty urban centre. Is that near the it's coast? It's very populated. It's very close to the coast. And the location of this uh, mine is very close to the airport. I mean, a cement plant sends out a huge amount of dust, you know, that's going to affect the aviation uh, situation. But worst of all, it's the water. The whole Balkal sits on a limestone plateau. Well, limestones are incredibly complex, or, or cast system, they're incredibly complex geological system, it's very difficult to know how you're going to affect the hydrology. And when they regulate water, they also an effective water catchment. So if they destroy the limestone system and affects the hydrological flow, many of the people will be without water. And that's a very serious problem. Not only just from basic, you know, livelihood, we're talking about security issues. Timo is still a fairly fragile country. People are not going to put up with not having access to water, especially clean drinking water.
1: Travelling east to PNG, a major shooting by police recently. Yes.
4: Over a 1,000 students was marching to the parliament from the university in protest of the Prime Minister's refusal to step down despite being ordered by the court to do so. And uh, for years, in 2011... The uh, PNG court ordered the Prime Minister, Peter O'Neill, to stand down because of some corruption-related issues. He refused and maintained, continued to rule Papua New Guinea until now and still ruling. There's been a whole series of peaceful protests by the students in the last few years.
1: Is it just the students who are protesting or is it others as well?
4: Now it's been escalating to other provinces and ordinary people. But on that day, the student led the charge and uh, they totally unarmed. Uh, and then they got joined by some neighboring communities, ordinary people, until the police started shooting with automatic weapons and uh, later dispersed the crowd by using tear gas. Today, we still do not know how many people has been injured, whether there's been any death. Yeah, it's all very rather chaotic.
1: There were reports that a number were killed. Are you saying that they won't release the figures of
4: casualties? Um, yeah, initially there was a report that four were killed, but at the moment it's still not sure. there has been, it hasn't been confirmed. I'm not sure why. I mean, that's Papua New Guinea. There's not a lot of uh, you know very reliable records and so and so forth. But definitely, there were lots of people who were injured. And businesses closed now for the rest of the day because they were all so scared. And since then, there's been some confrontation happening in the, in the provinces. There have been protest actions in home villages or, or, or urban areas in other parts of PNGs.
1: I know in the past that the Australian government's aid to PNG has featured money for mm, police. Yes. Could you say that these automatic weapons that the police are firing on unarmed students
4: are actually coming from Australia? It might be. In fact, there's been a report in The Guardian talking about how Australia's been complicit in not taking action against corruption, against police brutality. In 2013, under the Rudd government, Papua New Guinea and Australia signed a deal to allow manus to be used for our uh, refugees or asylum seekers, Since then, Australia's kind of tolerated corruption and not taken any action against police brutality. In fact, uh, there was a leak, uh, an Australian consultant probably who worked in, in that PNG police training project was reporting to Australia about the problem he's seen with police brutality, how they, they were murdering, raping villages and so on and so forth, and also treated the asylum seekers with a lot of force again violence and uh, brutality and rapes and so on so and so forth. But Australia did nothing for fear that Papua New Guinea will withdraw its support for the Manus detention centre. In a way, you know, we are facilitating corruption. By closing a blind eye to police brutality, we are basically, you know, allowing more violence to happen in Papua New Guinea.
1: And Australian Federal Police are there as well?
4: Yeah, yeah. We train the police force, of course. Obviously, the training's not being very effective, and there's been too much political compromises in Australia's interest in terms of dealing with the asylum seeker problems.
1: Well, what's going to happen with O'Neill? He's hung on all those years. It must come to a, a head sooner or later.
4: Yeah, I think because of this shooting, on the one hand, O'Neill's trying to use a shooting and predicting more unrest as an excuse to declare a state of emergency. Again, you know, to try and stay in power because next year PNG is undergoing an election, a federal election and O'Neill might be voted out. And uh, he's doing everything to try and keep himself in power. So, yeah, we don't know what's going to happen, but there's been call for inquiries. From my understanding of reading from the news that the Ombudsman Commission will be holding an inquiry into the shooting of the students. I also understand that the police had also offered to do that, or maybe also doing that. So you get two very different reports. Maybe more than two. One of the things that I found quite inspiring was just after the shooting, a big group of women marched to the street with their hands on the head in solidarity with the students and with those who have been injured. And they also put muds on their face, symbolizing, you know, mourning in the PNG tradition. That's really touching to see women doing that. And in the Pacific. Women's role are often neglected, and particularly by aid program as well, but they, they often are very crucial in maintaining peace, law and order, in advocating for change, usually in a much more peaceful manner. I hope, you know, the women will get stronger and more empowered through this kind of problems and that they will be recognised as a force to, you know, of change, of, of positive change in the Pacific and particularly in Papua New Guinea.
1: And that's environmental activist Lee Tan who worked for many years in PNG, also works in East Timor and Malaysia and Indonesia. Lots of activism there. Hopefully she'll be on the program again, not too distant future. And if you Donated to the Radiothon a couple of weeks ago. Thank you so much. You're helping us to get to our total. If you were, happen to be away that week, it's not too late. Want
5: to keep your radio radical? Well, it's not too late to donate to 3CR's 40th Birthday Radiothon and we still need your support. Call
0: 9419 8377 or visit our website at 3cr.org.au. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street in Fitzroy during our office hours to pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR, 40 years of radical radio.
1: Eight years of the Iran-Iraq war. The first Gulf War, followed by over 10 years of crippling sanctions against the government, resulting in possibly millions of deaths, particularly 500,000 children which Madeleine Albright acknowledged as, quote, worth it, unquote. Then invasion and occupation by US-led forces, which to this day remain in Iraq. And the latest atrocities carried out by ISIL militants. And just in the last weeks, the bloody and brutal end of the two-year-long ISIL control of Fallujah. Most people would believe, looking at those facts, that there wasn't much of a future for Iraq. On the line is Dr Tim Anderson, who's a senior lecturer in the Department of Political Economy at Sydney University. Tim, what do you see as both the present and the future for the people of Iraq?
5: Well, the people of Iraq, probably contrary to a lot of expectations in the West, have fought back and created a government, which has all sorts of problems, but it also has its own political will to address some of the key issues. I think it probably wasn't widely recognised that the Iraqi government, after about 2005, began to have differences with the US occupation force in terms of the privatisation of the oil resources and their mobilisation of those resources in terms of security cooperation with Syria. In terms of a range of things, and really then that was why 10 years ago the US created ISIS in Iraq. It was called ISIL, al-Qaeda in Iraq or the Islamic State of Iraq to prevent Baghdad developing that sort of political will and in particular strategically to stop it getting close to Iran. So what we've seen in that last 10 years and... Perhaps people forget this, that ISIS uh, was created in Iraq to try and prevent Iraq becoming more independent. Iraq has, to the contrary, become closer to Iran and to Syria. And the headquarters for the Iranian, Syrian, Russian, Hezbollah campaign against terrorists in, in both countries, in Syria and Iraq, is based in Baghdad. So that's been a significant a significant exercise of independence from the US occupation forces in Iraq so that's one thing that's that's been happening and of course as you said at the beginning the the liberation of Fallujah which was core to the resistance after the invasion of Iraq in 2003 was carried out mainly without US help that is to say the Iraqi army and the militia organised in Iraq with the assistance of iranian command and writing iranian advice has um, taken back that city completely just in the last week or so and their next target's mosul so effectively isis is on the retreat in iraq there's also um significant operations in anbar province which is the eastern province that goes and borders the the Raqqa province in syria which is still the sort of the headquarters for ISIS in syria so, or there's, there's been this tremendous cost in Iraq. Uh, Iraq is re-emerging as an independent country, which is important.
1: What about rebuilding all these shattered lives and shattered buildings, shattered cities?
5: That's already begun in Syria and Iraq to a degree, because people have to live somewhere, and uh, there's huge amount of construction. I mean, I haven't been in Iraq recently, but there's huge amount of construction in Syria in the wake of people returning to some of those liberated areas many thousands of people have returned to the liberated areas in syria and i saw some of that when i was there in april uh, and i imagine it's the same in iraq because people have to put up a house you know when people went back to Homs city after they'd kicked out the terrorists from Homs city and we've all seen those Devastated pictures of, of the buildings and so on in Homs city, with after years of fighting that were there, people immediately start to res- restore their homes and their shops and so on. So, although there's a huge, you know, there's a huge investment ahead, but people move into those things very rapidly once the situation has been stabilised. The problem is when the situation isn't stabilised, when there are snipers, when there's fighting, when there's car bombing, those sorts of things that precisely the sort of things that the, the armed groups have been doing for years in both countries, then it's very difficult to do that. Once stability comes back, the actual issue of putting up a building, putting up shelters and so on, those things can follow, those things can happen, and they are happening as we speak. So I imagine in Fallujah the same thing's happening now, that once they've got rid of those monsters that have been backed by the Saudis and by Turkey and by Qatar, for the strategic purposes that we all should know about by now, people start to rebuild their lives.
1: Who controls the oil in Iraq now?
5: Well, it's complicated in Iraq because there's been this deal under a a semi-federal type of constitution where the Kurdish leadership in the north of Iraq has had this deal with, uh, with Turkey that includes The turkey has a deal with with has had a deal with isis too in both countries in syria and iraq so one of the shifts in iraq that the u.s has tried to manipulate is to empower the kurdish group in the north to do separate deals with oil without the permission of baghdad now there's still a national government a unified national government in in iraq under the new constitution and the Iraqi government, and indeed international law has backed it up on this, is asserting that it has the monopoly over the control and the licensing of oil exports from Iraq. But there's, that level of subversion has happened with the test with the support of the US for the Kurds in the north of Iraq to do this deal. It's a strange sort of situation because, as you know, the, the government of Turkey has been waging this incessant war against Kurdish separatists in Turkey. But at the same time, they've got this deal with the Kurdish administration in the north of Iraq. So that's a source of aggravation. It's been tested in one case of a, an international ship, which was, was claimed, there was a Kurdish claim over that, and international law came down on the side of the national government of Iraq over the control of that. So it's a complicated situation there. In, in the north of Iraq, there's been something written about the fact that, and this may not be surprising, but... For all the the deal that the the Kurdish administration in the north of Iraq has done with Turkey, it hasn't flowed on to benefits to the Kurdish population in the north of Iraq. They're quite desperate in many respects. And the dispute there between the Kurdish administration and Baghdad is that Baghdad is saying, well, if you want to claim, you want to steal, effectively, the national resources from that part of the world, you can provide the social services to the citizens up there, too. So there's that sort of political conflict as well incited by this attempt to effectively balkanize Iraq, which of course has always been the plan B for Syria too to try and partition Syria.
1: What's the level of US troops and mercenaries still in Iraq?
5: Well, supposedly there's a withdrawal of troops there, but they were invited back in again for this phony shadow war against ISIS in Iraq, so there's a degree of been a degree of um, US troops mainly based in Baghdad since late 2014 almost almost two years now i couldn't tell you the exact numbers there that there are of course also some private companies involved there the iraqis have reported on a number of occasions that some of those same forces um probably including the private companies have been liaising with and providing arms to isis in in iraq there was a video that came out recently from some of the militia in that showed a number of helicopters u.s helicopters Flying over and flying into an ISIS occupied area at a sensitive time in a sensitive location when there was a when there had been an attack in those areas, so there's a huge degree of distrust in Iraq about the role of US forces, and that's why they haven't invited them into some of those key battles against ISIS, preferring to
1: work with the Iranians. Are you saying that the Iraq government doesn't have any control over these US private and and government? forces well well, that's their weakness
5: their weakness is of course they're committed to commercial and arms contracts with the u.s and it's difficult they can't easily say get out of our country but there's huge suspicion across iraq i mean it's been expressed in a large number of members of parliament and security officials and regional militia leaders and so on that they just don't trust the u.s they believe that the u.s is providing um, support to isis and trying to keep that irritant that destabilizing force in the country to weaken to weaken iraq and whoever's been the prime minister the previous prime minister and the current prime minister have to deal with a very difficult situation because they've got these contractual commitments to you know u.s weapons systems and so on the u.s controls countries through weapons system they don't allow servicing or re-export of those sorts of weapons so the iraqi government is still very compromised in that respect but their response has really been to just say you know talk nicely to them and leave them in baghdad when they carry out those sensitive operations there There was an opinion poll recently that showed that um, young iraqi people these days more than 90 percent of them consider their main main enemy to be the us so this is the outcome of 13 years of occupation and you know supposed liberation that the iraqi youth are is against more against the the US and virtually any other population in that part of the world.
1: Moving on to Syria, and I'd like to read a, f- a paragraph of a. It's an open letter to M- MSF. Mm-hmm. Your organisation is well regarded and influential. I appreciate that many good people work for and support MSF Doctors Without Borders. However, I need to inquire about your independence and the consequences of your work in Syria. I believe an objective look will reveal that you are helping in some areas and you are causing harm in others. And that's an open letter by Rick Sterling who's a co-founder of Syria Solidarity Movement. Who is the Syria Solidarity Movement?
5: The Syria Solidarity Movement is an international group. It's largely based in the US. It's a good group. It is doing genuine solidarity work as opposed to, I might say, the Syria Solidarity UK which is a a mad group which is um supports the color revolutions in syria and ukraine and elsewhere so the Syria solidarity movement and rick sterling in particular have been doing some serious investigation on some of the supposed humanitarian interventions in the region and um, that one you mentioned msf is one of the the sore points there. Another one is this group called the White Helmets created in in the US.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about that next, but can you talk a bit more about his open letter, what he's charging?
5: So MSF in Syria, what they've done in Syria, and I make the distinction with Afghanistan, what they've done elsewhere, typically MSF does emergency relief, they bring in foreign doctors. What they've done in Syria, for whatever reason, and because they were uh, initially a French-based group, there's a lot of suspicion that they're working with french intelligence in some ways which is against the syrian government remember france was a colonial power of syria until 1947 so what's happened in syria is msf has decided to put in operations effectively to support makeshift clinics and they call them hospitals and generally speaking they don't use foreign doctors although there have been some foreign doctors that have gone in what they're doing is funding existing operations with well what the west calls opposition groups what the syrians call the armed groups and effectively they're funding makeshift clinics in al-qaeda held areas and that's the aggravation that rick Sterling's pointing pointing to there for example in some of the occupied areas the areas that have been occupied for years by the al-qaeda groups when i say the al-qaeda groups jabad al-nusra the official al-qaeda which is banned by the UN Security Council and its close associates are Al-Sham and Jaish al-Islam for example in northeast countryside Damascus around Duma and in areas of occupied Aleppo also in in occupied eastern Aleppo and to some extent southern Aleppo these are the ones that a huge fuss has been raised about in the western media in recent months for the Russians and the Syrians supposedly bombing hospitals in fact if they've been hit at all and there's some doubt in some of these cases they've been makeshift hospitals set up in the occupied areas not declared as hospitals, used as a base for fighters and as you may know under under international law if a a hospital of any sort is is a military base the protection it, it enjoys under international law is removed and people are entitled to target military bases there. That's what happened in one case for example in a Hospital It was called Al Quds Hospital in South Aleppo, which was said to have been bombed, but there's doubt about this because it was damaged last year apparently by the Syrians or the Russians. That was not a declared hospital. There are pictures of it. There's no sign that it's a hospital. It's a residential building, heavily sandbagged, and apparently there was a clinic of some sort or a small hospital in the ground floor of that hospital. So, and when the allegations of that hospital being bombed came about, there was also a story that said, for example, one particular person who was the only pediatric specialist in Aleppo was killed in that hospital, and there was a huge fuss you might remember about that. Well, the Aleppo Medical Association, which involves hundreds of doctors and nurses, rejected that, that their appeal was um, really not run in the Western media. Since then, there's one doctor, doc, Dr. Nabil Taki, who's done a couple of interviews, and he's pointed out there's over 100 pediatric specialists in in Aleppo, in the major state hospitals and when the Western media has spoken about a hospital, they've only ever spoken of that particular one uh, Al-Quds Hospital, which Aleppans are not aware of and as I said it was an undeclared hospital. Indeed MSF has said that they don't declare that hospital because they fear it may be attacked. When it got attacked they say you should have known where it was because it's been operating for so long. So there's this type of double game going on with MSF and the the clinics that are being used for the armed groups and also probably their families as well
1: are you aware whether doctors without borders have re- have replied to this letter open letter
5: in fact they got in touch with me because i also wrote about the same thing right. maybe a little more harshly than than rick sterling did but what happened they spoke to rick sterling uh, their pr person he pretty much swore him to secrecy about the conversation just in terms of it was a conversation off the record and Rick Sterling is preparing some sort of response now, but they wanted to talk to me, and I'd heard about Rick Sterling's conversation. I wasn't prepared to have an off the record conversation with him, so I didn't speak to them.
1: Okay, you mentioned before the the White Helmets, and this relates to the death of the British politician Joe Cox, one of the three recipients of the appeal that they launched in her name, which is to date has raised millions of pounds. Is an organisation called White Helmets. And after her death, she was awarded its highest honour in recognition of her work to protect civilians around the civil war in Syria. What do you know about the White Helmets?
5: The White Helmets has been subject of investigation by a number of people since last year and one of the best writers, if you want to look her up, Vanessa Beely. I believe she's British, but she's a French speaker based in Europe. And she's part of the serious solidarity movement uh, the same group with rick sterling now a lot of the facts that came out from her investigation and others the investigation of others there's um, very good video online by steve Ezidine, an australian too about this show that the white helmets have claimed to be a humanitarian group with no political ties no government funding They're unarmed and so on. They go in to rescue people who who are injured in the various operations of the war there. All of those things have been shown to be false, demonstrably false. Indeed, the the organisation was set up by a a British military man, an ex-military man, and they've received funding directly from the British Home Office and from the U.S. State Department, and the State Department admitted that now, with this video of them armed, carrying arms, taking part in body disposal after executions, celebrating with Islamists of Jabhat al-Nusra, and then this group receives aid from southern Turkey, particularly a town called Gaziantep in South Turkey. Um, The British Foreign Secretary, the current one, his name I forget, has been down there um, delivering aid directly to the White Helmets. He's been pictured with a White Helmet hat on and so on, so... To say that they're unarmed, to say that they're not receiving government money is completely false. They're very closely aligned to the armed groups. And as I said, there's uh, a significant amount of video out now showing them involved in celebrations, firing guns into the air and so on with the armed groups and shouting out Islamist slogans and so on. So there's almost an identity between those armed groups, uh, in particular Jabhat al-Nusra, the band Al-Qaeda branch in Syria and the White Helmets. But they played a very useful role in covering up the type of the direct support to the al-Qaeda groups in Syria through pretending to be a non-partisan humanitarian group.
1: And I'd imagine the people in Britain who have been contributing to this appeal wouldn't have any idea of this story.
5: Probably not, because it's a very concerted campaign, and of course the corporate media as we've seen with the conflict in Syria, in particular for the last five years, is really not budged at all from supporting the state. The wartime media is an extraordinary experience. I've seen some gaps, let's say, in the academic and media discussions over Libya, for example, because the conflict in Libya, so far as the Western countries is concerned, is over. You know, Gaddafi is gone. That government has been destroyed. The state has effectively been dismantled. They don't care so much what's said there. There was a very good article about all of the false allegations against Gaddafi in Foreign Affairs, which is a very conservative journal close to Washington. So, those sort of things can be said now about Libya, but they can't be said about Syria. There's a huge level of censorship and manipulation of debate going on about Syria still. So, people, you're right, people who are contributing to that fund for the murder of Joe Cox in the name of Joe Cox after her murder would have little idea that the White Helmets are whistling directly with the Al-Qaeda groups and have been involved in military operations with the Al-Qaeda
1: groups. Thirdly, Tim Issam Zitoun, Free Syrian Army Commander in Israel recently. What's the story behind that?
5: Well, that was one of a series, he was one of a series of so-called Free Syrian Army Commanders. We should recognise here there isn't really, has never really been a Free Syrian Army. There's a lot of Armed groups, which have allied themselves from time to time under the umbrella of the Free Syrian Army, or at other times the the other groups, Jabhat al-Nusra or, or ISIS, mainly because the Free Syrian Army was a, a a conduit for arms. That was the main reason for it. It wasn't an army in the sense commanding groups of armed fighters. They were distributing arms and finance to those sorts of groups. So a series of those people involved in that network have thanked Israel in the past, for example, for its medical assistance, the ongoing medical assistance from Israeli hospitals in the north of Israel to all of those armed groups in the south of Syria, going up around Dara and around Sweda and so on, fighting in that area. That's mainly been Jabhat al-Nusra and a number of different armed groups allied to the Free Syrian Army, but in the last year or so, ISIS has had groups in there and a couple of other armed groups aligned to ISIS. So this person you mentioned who was at a conference in Israel is one of a series uh, who have publicly uh, expressed their thanks to Israel for their support, various types of support to the armed groups in Israel. Israeli officials, for their part, have been approached by the Israeli media. And the Israeli media has tried to sort of say, well, was there a distinction between the the fighters that you've been helping in hospitals and ISIS, and the Israeli government spokespeople have been quite explicit. They refuse to make any distinction between what they call the rebel groups operating in Syria. That is to say, they refuse to make a distinction between al-Nusra and ISIS and the other groups. They say they're doing it on a humanitarian basis, and anyone who's fighting the government in Syria, they'll provide humanitarian support to so this guy is just the latest of many to try and... He said he was there to try and show that the Free Syrian Army still exists and they're very happy to get Israeli support for what they, what they still demand as a no-fly zone. Joe Cox herself was one of the people still pushing for that idea of a no-fly zone. We know after Libya that means NATO bombing. You can't enforce any, any such thing unless you have military backup. That's what happened in Libya. That's what they want in Syria. That's what Joe Cox, unfortunately, wanted in Syria. And she voted against, by the way, the, the vote that they had in, um, and the vote that most Labor MPs in in Britain had to reject the idea of any, any British involvement uh, of trying to enforce a no-fly zone in, or bombing in Syria as they'd done in, in Libya.
1: How is the Syrian government coping at the moment from what you have heard?
5: syrian government is in a much better situation than it was a couple of years ago of course um, part of that is due to the russian air support part of that is also due to the the much stronger involvement of iran including the iranians recruiting uh, militia from across the region from afghanistan across to to lebanon for example so the iranians have been financing that they've been involved in training they've been involved in Organising the leading the the strategy the political strategy there on the ground with the Syrian leadership, and of course the Russian air presence, which has um, attracted a lot of attention. So, because of that, a number of areas in north west heavily populated north west Syria have been liberated, and as I mentioned before, a number of a large number of people have gone back to their homes and are rebuilding in particularly in areas around in northern Latakia and Idlib and Hama. Southern Aleppo province and eastern Homs province, for example, and the battle is still going on there in and around Aleppo with ISIS and Nusra and a number of other groups there. So the Syrian government has strengthened its position there. The big stronghold of armed groups in northeast countryside Damascus, the cordon has drawn more tight around there. The, it, the Syrian government has the upper hand in in the other field of fighting, which is southern. Syria, supplied by Israel, as we were saying before, and of course you'd know that uh, they took back Palmyra earlier this year, in March this year, and are now the Syrian army from the West and the Syrian Democratic Forces, who are claimed to be supported by the U.S., but are in fact also armed by the Syrian government, have been advancing from the North. That's a group, the SDF, which is mainly Kurdish groups with some other Arab groups there. They've been advancing on Raqqa from the north also, so there's a, an offensive against the the ISIS capital in Syria, Raqqa, while the Iraqi army is closing in on the um, on ISIS in Anbar Province, which borders Syria. There, it's been reported that, for example, the the major part of the finances from Raqqa have been taken out of that out of that city. there has been infighting within ISIS, and they've taken a large part of their finances to Mosul, which has now become. When Raqqa is liberated, which may occur within weeks, the the headquarters of ISIS will move to Mosul in Iraq, and that's the last big city that um, the Iraqis um, have to focus on. So the Syrian government has the upper hand. There's a great deal of reconstruction going on at the moment in Syria as people have gone back. Quite a large number of hundreds of thousands of Syrians have gone back to their homes now. This is not getting much prominence in the Western media because the Western media is still trying to promote their government's idea is that the U.S. has the upper hand here. In fact, the U.S. and the European powers have sent in special forces to try and ensure that they still have a say in the political outcomes there, and in particular looking at some sort of partition in northeast Syria, trying to use the Kurds as the Kurdish card in Syria, as they tried to use it, have tried to use it in, in Iraq with some mixed degree of success there. So there's a big... Um, game going on here, which is really to do with, can the the Western groups that have backed these armed um, groups, and of course, you know, through Turkey and the Saudis, um, um, the Saudis are very unhappy with what's been going on with the defeats, with the fact that the Iraqis and the Syrians themselves are defeating ISIS. The Israeli intelligence chief, Halevi, recently expressed concern about that, and it's drawn in French and British and US and allegedly German special forces into northeast Syria to try and keep their foot in the door, so to speak, to have a say in the in the eventual political outcome. Both countries,
1: and that's political activist and politi- political economy lecturer at Sydney University, Tim Anderson, Doctor Tim Anderson, speaking about Iraq and Syria. It's just after 5.30, coming up in a moment, Brexit, what does it mean, why did it happen, what's going to happen next?
0: Are you wondering how to pay your donation to 3CR's 40th Birthday Radical Radiothon? You can pay online by going to 3cr.org.au. Or call us on 9419 You can also visit us in person at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy and pay by cash, cheque or EFTPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. Thanks for supporting another 40 years of 3CR.
1: Palestinians are living under a crushing occupation as exiles or as second class citizens inside Israel. This must stop and Australia can do something about it. Right now, politicians are listening to what matters to people. They want to secure as many votes as possible this federal election. Please go to ivotepalestine.org.au and ask your candidates to pledge their support for Palestine. This is a campaign of the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. Please spend just one minute visiting visiting ivotepalestine.org.au, a 3CR supporter. We
6: shall overcome. We shall overcome someday.
1: Recriminations, hand wringing, blame, tears and cheers, jubilation, dismay. What I'm talking about. victory of the Brexit campaign of course. For his thoughts on the matter, I rang Jack Smith from the human rights group Safecom in Narragin, Western Australia.
6: There's a whole lot of stuff happening here in the UK. Let's first note also that there was a lot of buyer's remorse. More than a million people are sorry that they voted for Brexit. And how come? I grew up in Holland as a young boy in the middle of the common market. I'm a common market teenager, because that's when all the discussions in Europe were in the way to create somehow a post-war unified Europe. And the push was not just to create peace, but there was a lot of consciousness following World War Two around the notion of never again. Never again will we allow this rampant fascism which murdered millions of people which really tried to explode common humanity and split it apart in camps that were only good for the real Aryan. It was the most most evil form of racism that the Western world has ever seen and ever known and we have as a result of the war the Marshall Plan, the reconciliation of Europe, the push for the common market, which was also intended to include Germany, post-Nazi domination, and to pull all the countries of Europe together in one direction. There was nothing evil in that. There was a lot of good in that. And That's where the European Union comes from, that's where the common market comes from, that's where NATO comes from, and let's not forget, that's where the United Nations comes from, that's where the push for democratization, modern style, comes from, and that's where the diplomacy circuit comes from. So, post-war, European Union reconciliation, but then, of course, we have conservative isolationism, In Britain, you know, we've got Maggie Thatcher, the domination of conservatives of the landscape on England, the island nation. And it has always been difficult to pull the UK into a common Europe. As we know, Britain has always only had one leg into the consensus of the European Union. It was only for economic reasons that the UK joined with um, a united Europe. So there's there's failures there, and all the way through this conversation we're having today, I want everybody of your listeners to have Australia in the back of their mind, because Australia is closer to the UK than to Europe, and that's where we'll come to later. But first we have this post-war reconciliation versus conservative isolationism, an island consonant versus multicultural, multi-state, pluralist, forest border federation of nations. The push of Europe was to have a federated continent that works together in many, many ways, but preserves its unique identity of each nation at the same time. As time went on, especially around conservative political elites, we have a cocoon forming of political class who are actually feeling very threatened with the electorate that might reject them. So we have this big world of political class forming in a cocoon in the Parliament. And, you know, Westminster is not that far removed from Canberra here. They want to replace society with an economy. The economic argument becomes more and more important because to promise stuff to get re-elected, you need money. So the stupid shift, I think... In political leads has been the domination of the notion of the economy which actually is replacing society because if you place society central you will be connected with all your voters and with the population if you place the economy central then the people in the country just have to submit to the economic argument and that's where this whole political class and their cocoon has slowly been moving to since the 70s what also happened of course since the 70s is that there has been a real big development of human consciousness in the 19th century in the beginning of the 20th century we all accepted the established power structures but in the 70s we start to realize that we have our power as a human being which is much more dominant than anything external. It's the anti-authoritarian, the anti-establishment move of the 70s, which actually is an expression of the fact that every human being is a voice of authority. Every human being has a say. Every human being is central to the world and what happens. And really, the integrity of the human spirit and the human Understanding, the inner understanding and the inner authority is the main paradigm developing in the Western world, in the world as a whole, I think, but expressed in the Western world through that consciousness. And what happens, of course, you need to become an informed person to develop that inner authority. If you don't develop your total understanding of your society, including how the political class operates, and its limitations then you become an uninformed inner authority there's a danger in that and we've seen that in australia with pauline hansen who thinks she knows it all but has some real deep xenophobic element because she refuses to actually understand and comprehend what went before you know her downward envy towards um, other people who get more money than pensioners and then poor people in the country is a form of xenophobia a form of racism which always ends up targeting foreigners and the interlopers who come here and take our jobs take the pension false notions that they get more money than pensioners false notions that aboriginal people get all the rights and all the government funding while normal pensioners suffer That's all Pauline Hansen stuff. It comes from dim inner worlds, and it comes from uninformed and ultimately brazen racist motives and ideological positionings. So every human being may have the voice of authority, but what it means is that those who do not do the homework become really dumb and stupid opinionated beasts. You know, for instance, we've had this said in Parliament, Halal food manipulates your subconscious, and homosexuality causes bestiality. That's just about the dumbest conclusions you can make, and you can only make those conclusions. You both have a preordained agenda to hold back the modern world, and you keep yourself uninformed about what the real facts are like. So there's a lot of stuff happening here, that caused, for instance, that Brexit vote. A lot of people voted for Brexit because they wanted to get rid of the foreigners. But they just failed to see what the positive aspects were that the European Union has brought to the UK. And, of course, immediately, buyers' remorse set in last week after the vote came down. Let's not forget that if the vote would only have been allowed to people under 50 years of age... Brexit would have been a total failure. Eighteen to twenty five year olds in the UK. Only seventeen percent of those young people supported Brexit. If you extend it to fifty years of age you get a different figure, it's like thirty percent or something, or thirty five, something like forty percent. You get really it is the oldies, the people over fifty the nasty whingers about losing the great unity of the great in Britain that wanted to kick out the foreigners and wanted to kick out foreign rule. Well, there is no foreign rule, but you see, of course, that false notion of what the European Union is has entered people's minds because the political elites in their cocoon only preached downward to their voters. They did not bring the people with them. So in in other words, the conservative domination of the politics in the UK have caused the fact where they are only talking about the economy and they have have become an absolute failure in committing the electorate to follow them. So the electorate becomes totally disconnected from the political elites. They do their own thing, they have their own understanding and it's a really dim and stupid understanding. Really, the rise of nationalism and the rise of fear to lose our beautiful British identity is a product of conservative domination of the political elites. There is a lot of push in Europe for an inclusiveness in consciousness. We want to include those who are not like us, and those who are not like us, are for the leading proponents of the European Union, all the French countries like Hungary and Austria and even Turkey. The debate about whether Turkey is going to be included or not in the European Union has raged forever in Europe, and it isn't finished. But there's also a failure on the part of the European Union to actually really grow the consciousness in Europe against fascism. We, of course, knew what happened in Vienna during World War II. The artists and the musicians and the Nazis were all good friends. And you see the lack of consciousness development in Austria right now, where the far right is on the rise. You see it in Hungary, even, where the president of Hungary wants to look like Adolf Hitler. It is unbelievable that it's still happening, but there you see the failure of Europe, To actually not just grow the common market, but grow consciousness, grow opinion, and grow development of what constitutes true democracy and true decency in governing in an inclusive way. The dominant countries in Europe have not been successful in convincing what the leaders of um, some of the fringe countries like Austria and Hungary and Turkey, and there are some others need to learn is that that never again promise after world war ii needs to really resound right around the continent uh, the never again promise was the promise that caused the formation of not just nato but also the un and the diplomatic circuit and the very paradigm of diplomacy and soft power and europe has not been doing all the work it needed to do in convincing those french countries to get rid of their elements of fascism. Now we have, of course, the bottom line, especially in the UK around Brexit. We have the notion that there is now such a vast chasm between the political class and the disenfranchised voters that the bridge cannot be made anymore. You see now, post-Brexit, that all of the political class is imploding. The Conservatives are imploding, with Cameron immediately announcing his resignation, and the former mayor of London, Boris Johnson, also trying to avoid stuff. We see Labour completely imploding. Even the popular choice of the new Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, is um, under siege. Dozens of people have resigned from a shadow cabinet. So the whole political class is imploding, and it is because they have failed to take people with them. The political class, in their elites, have been sheltered nicely in their cocoon of rhetoric in London, rhetoric in Westminster, and they've sheltered themselves because they were so scared. They um, have concentrated on the economy rather than the society, and they've decided it all. And the conclusion of the disenfranchised voters is: they are lying to us. They're completely lying to us. They're continuously lying to us. And that's where the big chasm between the normal people in the country and the political class is. Now, all of that, of course, has built, since the turn of the century, the new racism. The, the markers of the new racism, rather than the old racism, is that the new racism does not speak his name, and the new racism cannot be called out for what it is. And you see also that this quick, oh yeah, okay, we'll have a referendum promised by um, Cameron, is really an expression of his total failure and the total failure of the political class to call out racism for what it is. Because UKIP and its leaders should have been called out for what they are. They are brazen racists, and they're trying to establish racism as a political class in the UK, just like uh, Le Pen did it in France and Geert Wilders in the Netherlands and other leaders in other countries. So the quest really is how will decent political leaders stand up and become leaders while at the same time calling out racism for what it is. Because it is racism, it has always been racism, and it always smacks of a yearning back to the fascism of the Nazi period. And that needs to be called out. Nigel Farage needs to be called part of the neo-nazi squad and needs to be said in the parliament It needs to be a discourse that needs to be developed and needs to be heard loudly and clearly in the uk and right around the world and you see also in australia you see the same parallel there were some aspects to tony abbott's leadership that smacked of fascism and racism why do we have a goon squad now a border force that is now found to be totally corrupt Why is the immigration department, why has it been militarized? Why are their uniforms, black, looking like Mussolini, the fascist elites in Italy? Why is this happening in Australia? Why do all the journalists this morning applaud the great achievements of Sarah Ferguson on Four Corners last night, whilst he lets Malcolm Turnbull get away with praise and lies about offshore processing? She is failing, the political class is failing, but the journalistic class is failing too. Yesterday's Q&A panel was stacked with conservatives. Why is it happening? Why is Tony Jones having four conservatives supporting the Turnbull government on the panel in the last show before the election? Why is it happening in the ABC? Why are all the journalists applauding Sarah Ferguson, who failed in her job? to confront the brazen lies of Malcolm Turnbull about refugees and about our offshore torture camps. And these things need to be addressed. We need to demand from our political class that they speak out about the graven brazen policies in relation to the foreigners in Australia. The brazen policies to refugees. So what we're going to see on Saturday also is The number of people walking away from the political class, i.e. the conservatives as well as Labour, is going to be growing exponentially. It will be bigger than ever in Saturday's election. There will be a larger number than ever that do not vote for Labour or the coalition. There's a lot of people that have actually, are going to vote with their feet. They're going to Demand decency towards asylum seekers and refugees, so the Greens vote will be higher than ever. It's also wider spread than ever. There are still seven seats in play for the Greens at the moment. They may end up with two, but they're all still in play until we know the outcome of this election. And it is because the political class is failing and they get away with lies and they get away with broadcast outlets like the ABC not even mentioning the others. The ABC should represent the people, but it actually is representing the dominant discourse in the political class. And Sarah Ferguson and Tony Jones, her husband, were both an expression of that bias in the ABC. And guess what? They're both regarded as the political elites in the ABC. They're the prince and princess of the ABC broadcast network. And they're both failing in their job. So there it is. People will vote. You know, it this is a really surprising thing that it is in Australia, unlike in Britain, not escalating because very slowly we found alternatives to the dominant political class. Finally, the two-party system is breaking, and it's breaking without guns being fired, without murders being committed, and it is actually breaking in a democratic way. People are finding a way in Australia and that is quite surprising because it is just as bankrupt here, the dominant political class, as it was in the UK.
1: I'm just wondering, Jack, about the image of Britain itself with Wales, Ireland, Scotland. What the people in those parts of so-called Great Britain are going to do?
6: Well, (laughs) the United Kingdom is not so united at all. My expectation is that eventually Scotland will secede, Northern Ireland will have similar solutions, and Wales will also follow. I have no qualms that David Cameron, the great Conservative leader who thought he could unite the Britons, has completely failed, and he's going to be pointed at as the man who broke the heart of the UK. And... By its stubbornness about the UK, about the European Union, by its stubbornness about we are different, we are the great nation of the United Kingdom, and we will not accept the European Union, but only the common market, that arrogance has actually caused the complete annihilation of the United Kingdom as we know it. It will be a small country in the future. In 50 years' time, I reckon Scotland... And Wales and Ireland will all be Gonski from the United Kingdom.
1: Well, I would like the royal family to be Gonskied.
6: (laughs) There is already on the Twitter um, network conversations. um, We don't want the Queen and our children and our dogs and our horses in Australia. They will seek shelter, but we don't want them. But, I mean, what is the use of a kingdom if there is nothing to govern in terms of the Commonwealth? The Commonwealth will eventually break down. So eventually, you know, for Australia, of course, this is... um, Eventually, we need a republic, but many, many years after that, the Britain will finally admit that there is no use to having a queen. But it's minor. It really is minor. It belongs to the symbolism, and it will survive for a long time because the British people want to keep their identity until they realise they can't have it. There may be a big, big riot right around the UK. We may get big, violent riots in the UK, but I don't know how it develops, and it's only of secondary importance to me. We are Australia, and eventually we'll have a republic anyway.
1: Just to finish, Jack, the amazing thing about what's been happening in the last couple of days, that it wasn't predicted.
6: No, it wasn't, and it has been the biggest wake-up call to the political elites in the UK. And that's why Jeremy Corbyn is on the ropes and uh, David Cameron is on the ropes and all of the political class is on the ropes. And we have no idea what's going to happen. It may be a, a riotous country for some time to come, but who knows? Eventually, change will establish.
1: And that was human rights activist Jack Smith speaking to me this morning from his home in Narrogin, Western Australia. And I think it's about time for me to go. I'll play a couple of community announcements and then you'll have done by law. Bye for now.